0: Welcome to Speakeasy Theology with Chris Green.
1: Billy Monte, thank you for being here, David. Let me introduce everyone to you really quickly. My guests today, and David is co-hosting with me, are David Harvey, who's a pastor at Westside Kings in Calgary, Pentecostal Bible scholar, expertise in Galatians. I mean, expertise in all things biblical, but especially <laughs> expert in Galatians. I'm not
2: sure any of those things are true.
1: <laughs> <laughs> They're true enough. They're true enough. And the luminous Mati Kainen, who's uh, a legend. I mean, a legend not only in Pentecostal theology, but in theology, period. I remember, Mati the first time I saw you, you were in a top hat, and it was... It was such a joy. I had not at the point at that point I hadn't even read anything by you. I didn't know that you were the person I had read books by, and I was like, "Oh, that's a man I need to know right there." <laughs> and it's been a joy. So thank you guys for being with me today.
0: Thank you. Of course, uh, it's a great uh, joy and privilege. It's good to see you guys. Absolutely, David. Thanks for making
1: time for this. Hey, it's great to be with you. David is also serving as producer for this episode. So if the if the quality is better and the overall conversation improves. You can you can thank David for that.
2: Conversely, so, Valimati, let's, the, let's, the opposite is true.
1: Also, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, if it goes badly, please blame him. That's exactly <laughs> right. In my latest book, in the introduction, I named some people who helped with with editing and suggestions, and I said, you know, if you like anything in the book, thank me. But if anything goes wrong in the reading, just <laughs> assume it was poor editing on their part. Oh, <laughs> uh, so Vali your you're a professor of systematic theology.
0: At Fuller, and you've been there since at least 2000, right? You've been there... Yes, um, um, uh, I joined uh, Fuller full-time in August 2000, so at the moment of recording, I'm on the 23rd year. That's impressive. And correct me, did you, if I'm wrong here, did you replace Wolfgang? I'm not Wolfgang... um, Yes, I replaced um, Miroslav Wolf, our mutual friend. Um, Miroslav uh, went off to Yale, and uh, there was an opening, and that's why that's how I came um, to the uh, to Fuller. So
1: you're also, I believe, I have this right, docent of ecumenics, right, at university in Finland. Talk
0: to us about that. (laughs) Yes, I was old continental. I mean, Finland is not continental, but. at the University of Helsinki, my alma mater, mm. we follow those old uh, continental uh, German based um, titles. And docent means that um, you have been um, uh, esteemed to be at the level of a uh, professorship, but you are not um, seeking for nomination or you are mm. not a full-time professor. Um, you Americans would say uh, adjunct professor, but the difference is that adjunct uh, often in the U.S. is of junior uh, level, mm-hmm. whereas uh, to be a docent, you have to write um, on top of your Ph.D. dissertation. You have to write uh, a second Ph.D. work or uh, have... um Publications which which will be examined by the faculty of theology. So mm. what I did, uh, I first published my uh, uh, dissertation, and a year later, I submitted my second dissertation for examination. Because um, my doctoral father, uh, my doctoral mentor, late Professor Mannerma, told me when I was about to begin my seven hundred fifty page in my dissertation, he said, I split it in two and make them distinct enough. Mm. So my dissertation was about 500 something pages and the second one only 370. <laughs> only, only. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <A junior. laughs> at, at the time, we didn't have those limits, which we have nowadays.
1: Uh, thank God, both as a student, PhD student, and as a supervisor, thank God for, for the limits. Tell us what you wrote about in, in both of them. I'd yeah. love,
0: love to hear. Yes, uh, my uh, first dissertation was on Roman Catholic and uh, Pentecostal pneumatology. So I compared um, uh, some Roman Catholic and some uh, Pentecostal views of the spirit, and then the the second one was on uh, mission, eventually, uh, social justice, and uh, proselytism in ecumenical theology, mm-hmm. where I also looked at some uh, Catholic and Pentecostal, but also like World Council of Churches and such. Because my, my uh, degree from the University of Helsinki is in ecumenics, with yeah. a minor in dogmatics. Mm. They both belong under systematic theology uh, at the University of Helsinki.
1: Hmm. So yeah, and, and I'd love for our conversation to just kind of orbit around around those studies. Mannerma, what, what he was focused on, the what has now come to be called like the Finnish Lutheran yeah. understanding. Yes, talk talk a little bit yeah. about his yes. work. And how, and how
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Professor Mannerma, he passed um, about seven eight years ago, and I dedicated my volume four of five volumes in my Mm. constructive theology to him. Um, At the end of the 1970s, the Lutheran Church in Finland began uh, talks with um, Russian Orthodox Church. As a footnote, there was also uh, an established uh, Eastern Orthodox Church in Finland, but not under the Patriarchate of Moscow, but Constantinople. Oh, wow. So Lutherans, uh, the the Lutheran Church in Finland, of course, had had conversations with the Lutheran Church in Finland under Constantinople, but not with the Russian Orthodox. And Russian, with the uh, conversations, the idea of theosis, deification, divinization, as the main um, Greek Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox idea of salvation came up, and at first both Lutherans and Eastern Orthodox thought these are totally incompatible notions. I mean for many reasons. Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. know any, I'm not talking to you, but uh, anyone who knows anything about theology might say yes this going into diametrically opposing opposed uh, directions. So Mannerma began the inquiry. Into the potential either convergences or some kind of uh, uh, connecting points between the soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, between the uh, what used to be Greek-speaking um, Orthodox Church and which at the time was Latin-speaking, um, you know, um, Christianity, and he had a number of um, talented doctoral students. Who began to probe into martin luther's own view of justification mm. because the the Lutheran understanding of justification in the in our confessional books i 'm an ordained uh, a Lutheran minister, so I say our so the those are well known like Lutherans have known for hundreds of years what a book of Concord and the yeah. established Confessional, confessional documents are saying. Mm-hmm. But Mannerma found out that, as it often happens, Martin Luther's own view of justification is not <laughs> similar. It's quite different. Like, you know, between Calvin and the Reformed, yeah. you can yeah. never have the equation. And so, and that was the beginning of what is called either Helsinki um, School. Uh, of Luther interpretation, or often called uh, Mannermann School. And not only that, but um, Mannermann School found out that uh, there is not as much juxtaposition or antagonism between Roman Catholicism and Martin Luther's own views. Of course, a former Augustinian monk. There are differences. I don't want to whitewash uh, ecumenical studies is not meant to tell you that there are no differences or that differences do not matter. No. Mm-hmm. But ecumenical study compares notes and asks questions that usually our preconceived ideas have already stifled. Yeah. Like like typical Lutheran thinks Catholics <laughs> are they even Christians <laughs> right, right, and, and, and we, you know, in, in English, we even yo- use that pejorative way of speaking, like Catholics and Christians. Mm-hmm. So that's that is where we start from. And then on the other hand, uh, we Protestants don't know much about Eastern Orthodoxy. So Lu- not Luther, but uh, rather my doctor father Manerma, he was able to to cast this vision. Of having Protestants, not only Luther, Protestants, Roman Catholics, uh, and Eastern Orthodox, to begin a, a work towards not consensus, not deleting differences, but mutual understanding, mm. and so that's the school where I was uh, trained, um, and uh, it was it was a good. Um, Way I remember when I started my doctoral studies, having already done one master's degree here in the U.S., I went uh, back to Helsinki, and uh, my first task uh, was to study carefully the documents of the Council of Trent, and then the Book of Concord. And as I was uh, continuing reading Luther, at uh, the next quarter, uh, Professor Manerma said, how well you know the 16 Vatican II documents? And I say, sir, in your presence, I would say none, (laughs) nil. And he said, that's not a problem. Go back home, uh, buy, at the time, we didn't have virtual. Purchase a copy of Vatican II documents, uh, there are only 16, and write an essay on each. Wow. (laughs) And then at the time, Pannenberg uh, had uh, finished uh, his um when I uh, later Panneberg uh, was finishing his uh, three-volume systematics. It was at the time in German, not yet in English. Mm. And Manorama told me, "You have studied uh, in the U.S. That's good, but I want you to study like real continental theology, Moltmann or Panneberg." And he said. Panneberg. He he was asking himself. He was not asking me. He was not asking you, right? Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. And he said, "Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm telling you, it wasn't fun in the beginning. Oh, that's so wonderful.
1: I love that so much.
0: Yeah. And then later on, you know, at one point, because I also did part of my, I mean, when I was moving from, Doctor, uh, The first dissertation to the second. I spent one year here in the U.S. with the Benedictines um, uh, at St. John of Collegeville, Minnesota. Uh, Father Killian McDonnell, who is also uh, mm. well-known among Pentecostals. Uh, he has an institute, and I got the funding from the Finnish Academy of Sciences uh, So for 12 months uh, with my family, my wife and two kids. We lived in the at the institute, and he taught me Benedictine uh, spirituality and Benedictine theology. So that added to my ecumenical exposure. Yeah.
1: Now, tell tell us this: so, you, when did you know? How were you raised in terms of your faith? Yeah, were, were I, you I was uh, yeah
0: yeah I was baptized and uh, as an infant in the Lutheran church and confirmed uh, when I was fourteen years old. But when I was um, Turning to my pre teens, my very pious Lutheran mother, and my dad at the time was not Christian, confessing Christian later he became my mom found an, an other a spiritual home in a local Pentecostal church, uh, never leaving mm-hmm. behind Lutheran church, but having and, and that's why I, in my early teen years, came in contact with Pentecostalism. And it became my second uh, spiritual home. And even when I am a practicing Lutheran minister, I I preach and do liturgy and everything. um, I always um, carry with me, the second half of me is Pentecostal. And I remember when my very liberal um, American uh, bishop uh, at the time ordained me in the... um, Evangelical Church, uh, ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. He said, under one condition, you promise not to leave behind Pentecostalism and promise not to be silent about it. Mm. And I kept my promise. Yeah, yeah. So I am a, a Luther coastal.
1: So in terms of your your calling to the ministry, your, your, your calling to theology, was there a yeah. moment in your life when you knew, I'm going to be a theologian and
0: a priest, or, I mean, how did, that, how, how did that play out for you? Good question. <clears throat> because I was a, a very active Christian in my teen years, uh, at both in the Pentecostal and Lutheran communities, I received a very definite call for ministry, but for a long time I didn't know what type of ministry. Mm. I was also very much drawn to academic things, And um, I first uh, studied uh, education and philosophy. Um, I was only 23 years old uh, when I finished my first master's degree. And um, I began to sense that my calling will be primarily, but not exclusively, uh, for teaching ministry. And Mm -hmm. um, preferably in the overseas, like mission field. I did my because i did and I was still uh, in my my late twenties uh turning 30, thirty and married and only two little kids uh, we moved uh to Pasadena and I did um one of my master's degrees at fuller uh over thirty years ago and then mm. we went back to Finland and then i began that was the first time when i did i've only done two years of full time pastoral ministry but but at the moment, time, I knew it's not going to be my, my full-time ministry, even though I loved it. Mm-hmm. And then, um, at the turn of, uh, in, in early nine, ninety, ninety or ninety-one, we were sent to Thailand. Yeah. And there I was, um, the, uh, I was a full-time teacher in a college which was uh, founded by missionaries, but at the time had Thai leadership. And I gained uh, fluency in Thai, so I was teaching theology in Thai and also preaching mm. in, every Sunday uh, in a lo- in couple of uh, local churches. Mm. And, and I knew that this uh, double calling, primarily theologian, but also all the time with the church, mm. was my was to be my calling, and it has been since.
2: Mm-hmm. I love that. David, why don't you jump in? Yeah, I I was interested actually in, in just as you listen to somebody's story, and and this is what I love with conversations like this, because these are the things you try and extract from little blurbs. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, this, what I'm feeling is this sort of shaping of your fascination with the pluralistic context of the world. And that's what yep. kind of you know, and 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 even I was thinking about how, it, and and I reson. I grew up as a missionary kid, so just to put that out okay. there. Okay. You know, so I, I uh, you know, and I now live in a context that's not my home as well. So I, I relate to sort of that that perspective that it gives you on. Different cultures, I think, changes your even your academic discipline. Sometimes you go go searching out these things, and I mean, has that been has that been part of it for you? Because I'm hearing this story, attempting to project that
0: onto you, but I'm curious if that's the case. Uh, Thank you, David. That's very helpful. I sometimes uh, tell my audience and my students that I have had no less than four uh, conversations. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> like I, I, I ask people have you been converted I say yes that's good I have three more <laughs> the first one was when I uh, began my teaching and preaching in Thailand and I call it uh, ecumenical conversion it struck me that um, whether you talk about Pentecostals, Baptists, Holiness people, Lutherans they were not able, they were missionaries, they were not able to come together and work, uh, you know, collaborating in a country where there were at the time more than 60 million people and less than 1% Christians, and really less than. And not only that, but you might have, for example, Pentecostals or Baptists, say uh, Pentecostals coming from Australia, and say, um, Germany, and say from Sweden. And they were not united enough to set up a common Bible school or theological seminary because they were not quite sure if, if, if it's absolutely orthodox. Orthodox, yeah. Yeah. And you know all of this story. So let alone when you have, uh, along, like, uh, because we lived in Bangkok. Uh, it's a huge uh cosmopolitan city. you could see a row like we call it them um, church row, <laughs> but they were different Christian churches, and God blessed them, but they spent considerable time in trying not to uh, bless and pray for others but rather uh, steal <laughs> the few sheep and you know all of that at the second um, conversion. Um, is uh, what I call uh, intercultural or global. I received a very good training in Helsinki. I never blame it, but it's also very narrow. I mean, in the best of the old continental tradition, I thought you have to be an elderly grey-haired man, as I am, to be a an European to be a good theologian. Americans do some, but you know, it was so narrow. For me, like uh, modern theology was Schleiermacher rather mm. than say Coutieres <laughs> or uh, say James Cohn mm. or Elizabeth uh, Johnson. Uh, so, the, this and my Thai students um, <clears throat> taught me a lot about intercultural theology. Some of them came from uh, say mountain tribes, they all spoke Thai, but that was not their first language. I spoke Thai with accent, and they spoke Thai with accent. For example, when they studied um, Old Testament, that was much more familiar territory to those mountain tribe students than to me. Hmm. And then the th- uh, two uh, so uh, that was um kind um the so the ecumenical uh, intercultural and finally uh, when I was transitioning back to Finland uh, for a few years, uh, uh, coming back to and then uh, before coming back to US, um, a very definite conversion into the need for comparative theology. Comparative theology meaning that um, you, uh, uh, when you study Christian theology, you also do interreligious studies. It dawned on me even though no one ever suggested during my student days that for example when you talk about Jesus you not only talk about what Enlightenment uh, philosophers or Aquinas or Calvin said mm. Muslims love Jesus. Buddhists have a high appreciation for Jesus. Or when you talk about creation, all religions have their own the cosmological narratives of origin mm-hmm. and I thought this is, I sometimes call them like um interdenominational because I, I love uh, alliteration I'm a preacher um mm-hmm. interdenominational intercultural and interreligious and that was the time when I moved uh, to Fuller and I sta- started uh, writing textbooks and others and one more conversion was awaiting the most painful painful in the sense that um For many years, I resisted a scholarly conversion to comparative theology because I was not, and I am not academically trained in religions. I, of course, having lived in Thailand and being fluent in Thai, I got a little bit of knowledge of uh, Theravada Buddhism because Thailand is the the home of Theravada, the original form. Mm. But other than that, I was left uh, to my own devices, so I started a painful, which is still going on, painful study of um, Islam, Hinduism, um, forms of Buddhism and, and Judaism. And I, oftentimes I ask myself, why am I doing this to myself? Because I'm already an ecumenist. I know so much about different Christian churches, probably more than some other theologians. And I was just thrown to it. But when I came to Fuller, I met people like uh, my very famous uh, philosopher colleague Anansi Murphy, now senior professor. There was a school of, there is a school of psychology. neuropsychologists like like Warren Brown, later Justin Barrett and others. And very surprisingly, in my very first years at Fuller. Nancy Murphy, because he knew, she knew that I also have a philosophy background, she came to me and said, well, Matthew, why don't you co-teach with me a PhD seminar on um, human nature? Hmm. And I said, uh, good, there are a couple of things, uh, a couple of problems. One, <laughs> I haven't done much work on theological anthropology, and knowing Nancy I said, uh, even though I know philosophy, I don't do neuropsychology. I don't do brain study. I don't... Uh, even philosophy of mind in the Anglo-Saxon world was not very familiar to me. And uh, Nancy said, that's not a problem. You learn. <laughs> she's a very... Uh, you know, uh, I would say um, she's a person who gets her will. <laughs> 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 and so off we went. and And... And then Nancy also, and not only Nancy, but also said to me very much, what if you added one task, uh, because you seem uh, not to have enough work. So add to your menu a little bit study of uh, neurosciences. Yeah, because um, when I said I studied education, that's like in behavioral sciences. I knew what behavioral sciences are. Mm-hmm. But, so Warren Brown and others came to the seminar and they gave lectures on the topic. I got uh, at the time also uh, one Templeton Foundation grant where with four neuroscientists and philosophers of mind, we spent time together a few months, uh, like on a daily basis. And and, that's, and then Nancy said the other day, um, Nancy Murphy, let's do a seminar on cosmology, like uh, in the intersection of theology, philosophy and cosmology and you bring some Islamic stuff. I said, good, but I don't know very much about cosmology. And the little that I know of Islam, I have no idea what's your cosmology. And then yeah. she said, don't worry. <laughs> and I remember one time we met at her home. That's many, many years ago. We had a student group. And uh, I was, and my task was to guide the conversation into Islamic uh, cosmology as part of our... and. I was thinking to myself: If the students only knew how little I know about this topic, they would laugh me out. <laughs> I mean, a little bit tongue, sure. tongue in cheek, but it has helped me. Some. Yeah. So, so, so inter intercultural, interreligious, and interdisciplinary. Mm. And don't you dare to add any more ice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, That's I my understand. brief. That's my story. <laughs> Scholarly story. <laughs>
2: David, did you want to ask a follow up? Well, I mean, it fascinates me the way you're saying it because my experience of academics, particularly, but I think this follows through to churches as well, and you've alluded to already, is this, the academy almost resists this type of work? Uh, yeah. y- y- you know, like like I'm used to, even in even in my field, where you know I go into a seminar with biblical scholars, and I'm realizing. Yeah. Like they don't really know what I'm talking about here, and we're all New Testament scholars in in, in the room. Uh, so I I love how you how you've sort of resisted that academic pressure to to not stretch outside of your field, uh, but then hearing this again, where it's actually you're thinking about this at a church level, because the same is true. I mean, you know, Chris would talk about this better than I would, but when you're part of a convergence movement, you seem to be constantly fighting this question of, <laughs> yeah. well, the reason people don't like that particular group of people over there is they don't know them. And, and, and so I, I, I really value the way that you're coming at that, um, which I'm realizing as this is forming, no question is coming out more just <laughs> praise. So I hope, <laughs> but maybe you can respond <laughs> yeah. to that.
0: Uh, can, can I, th- yeah, that, that's very. Can I tell one anecdote, uh, not anecdote, but a um, personal experience hmm. Um. Uh, David, you may you might not know, but uh, Chris knows that uh, my main scholarly work is a five-volume mm. um, work, a constructive Christian theology for the pluralistic world. It's about three thousand pages long, in which I discuss all Christian doctrines like God, um, Jesus, and and also uh, include global and contextual views from the Christian tradition and topics such as uh, environment, justice, gender, and other. But I also engage uh, natural sciences and four living faith traditions. Mm. So it's a quite massive undertaking. <clears throat> I prepared the project about actively at least six, seven, eight years. And then I, when I began the writing in 2009 or 10, the last uh, volume came out to 17. I was very hopeful that I will get a lot of uh, grants. And I have received some. But you know, year after year, uh, I remember when I applied for the first volume. And I had high hopes because I thought this is very innovative. And it is. No one has ever done it before, I'm um, proud to say so. Almost without exception, the feedback from various kinds of uh, funding agencies was great idea, but uh, you attempt too much. No one can do it. No one has ever done it. This is the way, this is not the way we do theology. Mm -hmm. And good luck. And, and and they asked me when and i said i would uh, deliver each volume in a year of course uh, in the hindsight is absurd but i did about 500 pages uh, each uh, december i submitted it uh, but i had to teach almost full time because uh, i didn't get much grants except uh, for fuller superiors. after second volume when they told me it cannot be done i said um but i've already finished two volumes and they said, oh, we haven't seen them yet and I mm-hmm. said, why don't you? And they often said you don't really have a clearly worked out methodology and I said, yeah, not because I'm a uh, working methodology as I'm writing because I cannot pin because they said, so whose method are you following? I said my own because there, no one has done theology in such a way yeah. After fourth volume, I said, "Don't, I can write these books," but it was quite. Um, I'm happy that I didn't. Um, I was able to keep an optimistic mindset, but I, it also was very disappointing because academia, particularly but, but um, liberal academia, say people around AAR, American Academy of Regents and elsewhere. Every new weird idea gets welcome. But if somebody wants to do like a bigger project, no, you can't do it. This is not the way we do it. There's no mm-hmm. method. Go mm-hmm. back home and do some uh, digging into sources. <laughs>
1: you, you mentioned, very much. you said that this last conversion was painful. In fact, I yeah. think you may have said the last two. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about the pain. Where's the pain been yeah. in this
0: project? Yes, uh, because... Um, As academic people, we always set the bar very high, the expectations very high for ourselves. Even when we write on topics that um, we have a proper training, like when I write on dogmatic or ecumenical topics, of course I am professional because I've been doing it all my life, I was trained for it, but still I feel like Perhaps I missed something of there might be misinterpretation. But then you venture into areas say like um, looking at Christology in the Hindu theistic Hindu and Christian uh, intersection. There's so much that I don't know. Even if I of course I have to depend uh, on the experts mm-hmm. But you often, I have this feeling, do I even know, do I make myself laughable? Uh, Is this like uh, so amateurish? Mm. And let alone if you talk about, say, uh, quantum theory. Right. Of course, I have tried to study the the basics, but I was trained in humanities. Beyond high school, I haven't studied sciences. And that was like, uh, you know, ages ago. So... Even though I tried to do my homework and for example when it comes to sciences, I, I took many years when almost on a daily basis I had a book of books beginning from like uh say one oh like introduction to say quantum theory one oh one or uh, say relativity theories for dummies and then I advanced, and then I read a lot of John Paul Kinghor and, and all kinds of those. But still, yeah. even the terminology is strange. I, I'm not used to be thinking in terms of, because everything is about mathematics, like uh, theoretical physics, and the, it's mathematics. Mm-hmm. And I have no background in that. On the other hand, what else can I do? I have my own limitations. And, uh, and many a times I said, for example, when I was... Uh, finalizing the plan for the five-volume work, I was almost dropping the, the natural sciences part. I knew enough at the time about neuropsychology and philosophy of mind through theological anthropology, but I was going to say what Barth said uh, when he was writing about 2,000 pages on the doctrine of creation. In the beginning, he says, it would be good to look into sciences, but... I don't think uh, it's my task. It's a little bit or David Kelsey, the, the great Yale theologian who wrote 1,300 pages on theological anthropology and does not have one paragraph on neurosciences and very little on philosophy of mind because he says he's doing theology. Yeah. But it doesn't appeal to me at all. I mean, I have a great appreciation for Barth and for Kelsey, but, um, but I also... That is opposite to everything that I feel uh, inside myself as a yeah, theologian.
1: And you, you have so much more experience globally than I do, but I think there's a peculiar in in America, in particular, the U.S. There's a not just our academy, but our our churches also have certain prejudices about. So if if the academics are worried, you're reaching beyond your expertise, or you're you're yeah. trying too much. I mean, in a lot of the circles that, that David and I would move in, they're, they're suspicious of that anyway. <laughs> like, why, why, would you, why would you care? So talk a little bit about maybe not so much testimony, how it shaped you, but what would you say to us about the importance of this kind of study,
0: yeah. not just across the religions, but across the disciplines? Yeah. Uh, I think um, <clears throat> hopefully it uh, cultivates your humility because mm-hmm. you really get to know how limited your own knowledge is knowledge is on the other hand <clears throat> it gives you an edge to assess the limitations of uh, even the current way of doing academic theology <laughs> um, if you isolate yourself as most theologians do not only uh, isolation from other disciplines and sciences and cultures, but even, for example, there are a big number of, um, I say it with due respect, I'm a white guy myself, but like um, young white male PhDs who couldn't, I mean, from the best universities um, of the world, either in the, uh, let's say, UK or US uh, or the continent, who have no idea of how diverse the global church is, how diverse North American culture is. Mm. Come to teach in LA, as I have done for almost a quarter century, I still don't know much about diversity, but at least I know that I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But how, and particularly, and again, because it's also part of my own... um, Community, particularly the more conservative, uh, the more fundamentalistic uh, Christian community you have, Pentecostals, non Pentecostals, they tend to be the more limited in their theological understanding. Mm -hmm. No uh, women's voices, black uh, and other theologians, they are doing contextual, we are not. Yes. Because my first lesson to my students, when they ask me, they call me Dr. K, uh, for reasons that are understandable uh, for Americans. Um, they ask, Dr. K, what is contextual theology? What kind of theology is contextual? And I say two things. On the one hand, all theology, always, everywhere, at all times, is contextual, because you cannot say a theological sentence, an idea, apart from your context. Nicene Constantinopolitan creed is highly, highly contextual. It cannot be understood apart from Greco-Roman culture, religious and philosophical culture, Mm -hmm. or Anselm of Canterbury's uh, Satisfaction Theory of Atonement. It can only be understood against the, backdrop of high medieval uh, feudal hierarchic uh, honor-based culture, and then just the students say, If that's so, why do we talk about contextual theology? I said, on the other hand, not all theologians are aware of the contextual nature. Of their theology. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we have to continue talking about contextuality, even though it's a placeholder. Like Karl Barth did not know, I'm sure, God bless his memory, that he was a highly, highly, highly contextual mm-hmm. theologian, male mm-hmm. theologian from the continental background, uh, Swiss, German, German. Uh, between world wars, reformed, and so forth. Or Augustine, highly, highly contextual, but I don't know that, I wonder if they thought in terms of contextuality. And that's what difference between, for example, when I write theology as opposed to, Um, Some of my, say, colleagues in in Helsinki, not at Fuller, because at Fuller, um, we have seen the light. But um, (laughs) some people, even some of my students, uh, very respectfully say, Dr. K., how can you write uh, contextual theology? You are European uh, white male, and I add uh, gray-haired aging. I said, Absolutely only theology that I can write is contextual because I do it uh, consciously. I am not trying to speak on behalf of women, of uh, brown people, of poor, (laughs) any more than very rich. Mm. But I can give voice to a communion of diverse uh, voices and opinions. And that's what makes uh, me, I have all the Right, as has my black uh, female colleagues or my Korean American male colleagues, Uh, we all are in the communion of various kinds of conversations and we respect each other, we learn from each other. That's contextual theology. And I -hmm. have to say that Fuller is uh, many miles ahead of most uh, originally white communities. And is that, is that a
1: question about Fuller? Is that, is that because of the missional concern? I mean, what, what set Fuller apart,
0: you think? Uh, uh, missional has to do it, but not only that. Uh, it's due to some very innovative leaders, even people like uh, our longest uh, ter- serving uh, president, uh, David Hubbard, who, by the way, was president when I was a student, mm. and it tells you how long time it is. And um, they began to question not only American conservatisms and fundamentalisms, uh, other uh, limitations and liabilities, but they began to raise questions as to what is theology for the global church. He helped many, many, many decades ago, for example, to coin a statement, mission beyond mission. Which is not only about mission, but a vision of the church and Christian life uh, which moves into the next uh, global phase. Then we had people like uh, Bill Durness, you might know, and a host of others who, when they were deans and others, who began to actively recruit uh, people who look very different from me. Mm-hmm. Like when I go to a faculty meeting, it looks very different from what uh, is, uh, for example, case actress uh, in your school, which is a wonderful school. Yes. Yeah, so much so that um, uh, at times in the classroom, I feel like I am I am in a blessed minority. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so, it's, it's, I love that, so, and I, I love that it's a it's a charisma. It seems like yeah. On- on that, on that school. You know, yeah, you- and now we have Amos Young and others who have done this kind of thing. My dean is now uh, Amos Young who, who is persistent about diversity, equity and because uh, in our circles it is welcome. Uh, we, we can say in a daylight the term uh, uh, racism or yeah. equity <laughs> yeah. or uh, those kinds of things. Yeah, so... Yeah. And they are not only tolerated, but uh, the, the, there's a warm welcome. And we lament, not long ago, even though I uh, faculty meeting, we lamented the fact that uh, we still look too much uh, white male oriented institution located where we are, mm-hmm. In, in, mm-hmm. in Los Angeles mm-hmm. or in California, and let alone because we have students from over 80 countries about 87 countries, um, we have to think hard how we prepare the leaders and the ministers uh, for the global church. Yeah. So yeah it's so a big, a big
1: But You know, you, I'm sure you know this, but this is one of Bonhoeffer's critiques of Bart. I mean, so I can't mm-hmm. remember where it is off the top of my head, but to your point about Bart being contextual, I mean, Bonhoeffer says... You know how would his theology has, have changed if he actually traveled? Right, even though yeah. Bonifas the younger man, yeah, he, he truly was a global thinker. Yeah. Like you know, Bonifer pastors in Barcelona and England. He preaches. You know, has two trips here to the U.S. When he's here in the U.S., he travels in the American South, down into Mexico. To go yeah, back. he preaches in Cuba. You know, there he dies as a young man, but he had a sense of that contextual reality and the global scope of yep. Christianity. And and he recognized that Bart did not. And he, and he asked that question. And if I remember right, and this is not my expertise, so I may be misremembering, but I'm pretty sure Bart knows this about it. He, rec- he He hears this question and and is offended by it. But it's to your point, right? That there is yeah. a way in which if we don't know that we're contextual, we don't yeah. know that our vision is narrow, and we can't own that, then it, it right. does distort right. our claims. Right.
0: Right. And I I give you one um, very brief uh, illustration. Um, I'm touting now my own institution, Fuller, but um, rightly so. When we revised our curriculum, uh, which we call now Fuller Next, which is even more robustly uh, about diversity, equity, and such, without leaving behind, for example, um, solid historical knowledge and others, we have... One of the courses that I chose to teach, it's almost like a college-level course, even though I teach more PhD students. It's called um, uh, foundation, uh, It's called um, something like um, Introduction to Global Christian Tradition. It's a foundations course, which has to be completed before a student can come to my um, uh, so-called upper-level um, system of theology courses. I'm very happy to say that uh, the teaching uh, module is about 10 teaching modules and I travel through the whole history of Christian theology and uh, in 10 weeks, like an overview for students uh, with little knowledge. Do you know that it takes until week number 5 to have their first read and begin to study uh, the history of Christianity in Europe? Mm. The first four weeks we do, um, you know, begin with Asia, Africa, Asia, Africa, then Europe, uh, weeks are five and six, week number seven, uh, Latin America, week number eight, they read for the first chapter in the history of Christianity in the U.S. mm, mm. Think about, and this is a very intentional, because we also, I have a colleagues Thank like uh, Kirsten, Kim, and others who are experts in world Christianity, and and we have done a lot of thinking, like when a, when a student uh, who is not yet contaminated <laughs> by um, <laughs> a regular kind of uh, seminary teaching comes to our, our classroom, like these are often f- not only first year, but first uh, quarter, first semester students, Think about how it begins to. They, they take it as normal. This is the, this is the normal way of doing theology. Yeah. Go to sorry to say go to pay or elsewhere. I'm just a, that's not the normal way of doing theology. Yeah. But that's the way uh, Christian history can be also taught. Mm-hmm. It started in Asia, moved to Africa,
1: mm-hmm.
0: mushroomed there, and then uh, in diverse settings. Uh, and we have uh, I have have been spun to and others who are experts in in um, African and uh, eastern uh, early um, uh, christianities. they give short lectures to the first quarter students about how African Christianity is. yeah not only what Andy Walls and others have said uh, about the 18 19th, and 20th century so so we begin to <laughs> indoctrinate the students. <laughs> into a truly global and contextual vision. And in my system the theology classes, the students also, they don't have a choice. They also get the basics uh, of natural sciences, like uh, when I start, teach uh, creation, theological anthropology, eschatology, and they have to choose at least one religion to engage with, most do with Islam.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and you know, if, and as you know, if you were to teach a course about religion, yeah. Christianity would come about the 6th or 7th or 8th yeah, year, yeah. the same good, way that good. the U.S. does. Good. Yeah, and I, I do think there's a way in which that that kind of the narrowness of our our sense of history and our sense yeah. of the just the scope of what Christians have believed, how they've lived, how humans have believed, and how humans have lived, right. it distorts, like fundamentally distorts even what we hold precious. I mean, part of what I try to communicate to my students is it 's not just that fundamentalism is narrow, and therefore you miss gifts that lie outside of your vision it 's that that narrowness distorts the gifts you yourself have been given you yes. misapprehend even what you have and one of the, and I want David to get to weigh in here, but i I would love to talk a bit about Pentecostalism because my yeah. my conviction and i'll i 'll put my cards on the table and you can, yeah. you can respond as you like is that I think what 's best about the Pentecostal movement. Is the openness to God that I think spreads around the world precisely because there's this openness to surprise, this openness to the new, this this chance for for God to do what surprises us. But in the US, unfortunately, the dominant forms of Pentecostalism have have committed themselves to this narrowness. And I, I think there's it's violating our own charism, our own calling. But before we yeah. get to that, David, did you want to weigh in at this point?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's there's two things that I would love to explore, and I think they're in line with the conversation we have as well. One is I can't, you know, in my area of where I'm a lot more comfortable uh, academically, I can't help but hear the whole resonance of Philippians 2 and the incarnation in this conversation, mm. right? You know, that, yeah. that I don't think as theologians reflect enough on... You know, like I've even heard it preached, and you know, preaching I do believe is a form of theology, where it's like, you know, what would it be like if Jesus came to a different place in a different time, um, and I'm like, yeah, but he didn't, and and I don't, but I don't think we properly reflect on the significance contextually. That I was thinking about the things you said about you know Augustine and the things you said about yourself. They're also true of Jesus, <laughs> that, that <laughs> he was born into a context, you know, as a particular yeah. person. And then that Paul takes that and says, that's actually part of the plan. The incarnation is as much part of this story as what this incarnated Christ does while he's here. The, the form is significant. And then if I can just bolt onto the side of that, you know, cognizant of the fact that you know, it's, it's, it's three white guys having a conversation. (laughs) I, I, I was, I, I was, I was able to spend some time. um, This is because this is maybe two parts to this. A couple of months ago, I got to spend some time in listening to Willie Jennings and he said Mm -hmm. something in this lecture that Chris has now heard me say three times, but it's really gotten under my skin and I like that it's under my skin. I want to keep it there that he said that, and I'm doing no justice in my paraphrase here. The, the, the dominant model of how we have done theology is fundamentally colonialist. Right? Yep. And, and by that, white men come into different settings as teachers never as listeners. And, and, and as you're talking today, I'm thinking, oh, this is exactly, you're trying to resist this exact problem that, that Jennings has identified as well, mm-hmm. that if we go in as teachers, we assume that we have all the answers, we assume that we know what yeah. to do in this particular yeah. place, and we pay no attention to the nuances of the context, the places we're in. And I think there's a link in all of that between incarnation and the brokenness of colonialism. And as a Pentecostal, I think we we absolutely are convinced that nobody else even knows about the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Yeah. yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Thank you, David. Can I chime in first before we Mm. go into Pentecostalism? A couple of things. Uh, Do you know that uh, Willie Jennings uh, is our uh, Board of Trustees member? Wow. (laughs) No, that's great. uh, Willie was the one who last year gave our very prestigious uh, Peyton lectures. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also had a chance to to respond uh, to his appointment. So um, we have learned a lot, and and Willie is also a fuller grad. Hmm. He did a master's with us. Um, That's great. And the other one is uh, talking about colonialism. When we revised our PhD uh, program, Hmm. um, We did, um, we began much more collaboration between um, disciplines than we have done in the past. And now I'm talking about theological disciplines, not as scriptural. I mean, they also do, but like uh, systematic theology, church history, historical theology, ethics, uh, philosophy, and with us, very strong uh, public theology. All the students... Whatever is their special, uh, we call it a concentration, ethics, philosophy or so, during their four-year studies, they uh, share six um, common seminars. They still, even in those seminars, um, they still can pursue their own specific uh, discipline, concentration, but they are together. Like I do one on uh, global church and global doctrine. Mm-hmm. we have uh, two or three uh, dominant themes that go through all of the six, and that is our post-colonial uh, critique, criticism. We make all of our theology students to get uh, fully equa- uh, acquainted uh, with the kinds of things that you mentioned about uh, Willie Jennings and the whole school of post-colonialism, so that um, it's not just an idea which comes uh, here and there, but it's one of the dominant uh, themes, and I, I love it. But uh, going back to, uh, but going now to Pentecostalism, uh, what I say next, I understand that uh, I consider myself as a Pentecostal, also, and and it's a very dear part of mine. One of the books that I would like to write uh, latest when I retire is I already have a title. It's not yet written, but I have a good title, the Babylonian captivity of Pentecostalism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It talks about, first part, talks about where Pentecostalism uh, chose or uh, reluctantly went under slavery. Namely, one is this uh, ecumenical um, captivity. Uh, what, what you mentioned, David, that others do mm-hmm. have uh, Holy Spirit. And you know the story in the 1960s when the uh, charismatic renewal started uh with first with Episcopalians and then Roman Catholics Pentecostals white Pentecostals uh, were the ones who resisted that's right that's right like uh, as if uh, the Holy Spirit would have had to have a consultation with the Assemblies of God or Church of God, like why did you go there and and all like you have a hard time in finding uh, Christians in the u s and in, in Europe who are more anti-ecumenical than typical um, uh, either pastor or lay person in the Pentecostal church, which, of course, totally (laughs) against the original vision. Mm -hmm. We also have cultural captivity of Pentecostalism. I think it's good uh, not to drink uh, too much or smoke, but if that's the take (laughs) on... And I don't smoke. uh, So... um, I mean, uh, tongue-in-cheek, and I hope that it doesn't uh, offend anyone's uh, sensibilities, but when the level of cultural engagement used to be at this level, and then, of course, movies and dance. Oh, I know. uh, There's a succumbing into cultural captivity that I think our opponent (laughs) has been applauding to. (laughs) These guys guys are safe. They can do all the holy roles of what they do in their churches. And there are others. Uh, There's also academic uh, captivity of Pentecostalism. Uh, How much resistance not only has there been, but there still is. I'm not talking about the circles where uh, we three uh, move around. Go to a typical um, Pentecostal church. And talk about finding a new pastor. Mm-hmm. PHA is like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <Right. laughs> yeah. You know, I right. And there right. are other, uh, there's also, uh, in the American, um, scene, on the American scene, um, political captivity. So, uh, my, uh, I, 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 I want to, uh, God willing to write a book, uh, very few, if not, uh, any footnotes. Uh, from my heart, where I, the second part would um, imagine, and hopefully it's a spirit-inspired imagination, vision of what Pentecostalism could be if it was ecumenically open-minded, culturally open-minded, politically open-minded, academically open-minded, and you can add others. And I wonder why the the almighty and all-wise, all-loving God, the Spirit, has not done more to break our walls. Mm -hmm. But the little that I can do as an academic educator, I think I have a powerful hammer, not against Pentecostalism, but uh, breaking down the barriers. Uh, And now I speak from my heart, which really hinder the work of God the work mm-hmm. of Christ. Mm-hmm. Why are not the Pentecostals, for example, in the forefront of pacifistic movements? And I'm not a pacifist. I have done my military service and uh, I'm a sergeant by my rank. But I, pacifism in a sense that they would not be militaristic. Or in the envir- envir- <laughs> environmental movement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why are they advancing political agendas that are not only stupid, but are harmful? Yes, And I'm not only talking about my host country. I can give many, many examples uh, mm-hmm. from my own continent, let alone if you go to Africa, Asia, Latin America. So we have done something wrong. Mm-hmm. And therefore, mm-hmm. again, I go back to, I think, uh, solid, good, and here it's right, the Bible-based academic, critical academic education mm-hmm. can do very much. Mm-hmm. It cannot do everything. It takes time, but I think uh, this is something that God has given to us, and and we have to, and and we are stewards uh, who carry the full responsibility for um, fulfilling our vocation. Mm-hmm. That was my sermon for today.
1: Uh, I don't want it to end. I, I want you to keep preaching because I think that's I, you speaking from that place. I, I think it's what we need to hear from you, both both as a as an elder, but also as an accomplished theologian, someone who's, who's earned the right to say these things from experience and study. I, I think some of what the sovereign spirit is doing is ironically fulfilling the things we said we wanted in spite of us. Right. So I think, I mean, I yeah. grew up around Pentecostals and in, in the Bible belt of the U S we prayed for revival in every service. And I think in many ways that has come but often through immigration and often among yeah, the yeah. very people, you know racial minorities and the, the poor, the very people that our politics tells us not to trust, right So yeah exactly. a, I do think the spirit is answering the cry of our heart, but there's a way in which we're just our captivity keeps us from actually rejoicing in what
0: the spirit is doing. So talk, talk about that just a minute. Yeah, uh, uh, particularly from Latin American liberationists um, that I have studied, uh, John Soprino, and and also some of my students have done um, PhD work on them. I have learned that um, oftentimes when we uh, Christians lament the absence of or very thin presence of the Spirit of God, we, are, we should lament the blindness of our spiritual eyes. Like what mm-hmm. you, Chris, said about um, the revival and uh, times of refreshments coming through channels that are unexpected, mm-hmm. like minorities, migrants, perhaps even some uh, crises that are not invited. Um, something we... Uh, and now I say we, because uh, something we Pentecostals need to cultivate more fully is a spiritual discernment. We talk about spiritual discernment, how many uh, times I've heard it in my life, and rightly so. But it's not only about discerning um, uh, between spiritual gifts or, say, if the uh, prophetic word is genuine. That is also spiritual discernment but if you go to say uh, Catholic uh, traditions those uh, spiritual traditions um, many of them monastic orders and others one of their main goals was to cultivate um, this uh, capacity to to listen to God in stillness to be quiet almost to empty your own uh head, the uh, thinking, in order to open to the wider presence of the Spirit of God. Mm-hmm. We Pentecostals don't do it. Uh, just look at our meetings. And again, I'm not saying that what we are doing is wrong, but I'm saying that there's so much we could learn from others Mm-hmm. One of the things that I uh, do as a more on my pastoral side and uh, because I also consider myself as a missionary, I do missionaries' retreats or pastor's retreat. Whenever I do it in the Pentecostal setting, uh, but less so in the Lutheran, but the uh, Pentecostal settings, and I have a couple of coming up uh, even this year. And they ask me what kinds of topics I, as the speaker, may have in mind. I almost always get a surprise, and then yes, when I say, "I think um, these Pentecostal missionaries," I would like to spend uh, some time. It's like a week, or uh, it's a weekend, like in in quiet prayer. I could help some. Like how to do Jesus prayer or uh, a scriptural meditations. <laughs> yeah, that's a good good idea. Let's work out the schedule. <laughs> oh, that's right. You get you, you get the point. <laughs> I do absolutely. And that is not the thing that I don't also want to raise my hands. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but but that's my my uh, quite. Um, uh, complicated response uh Christian question we have a lot to learn uh, from from the, the the wider church and 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 really this um, the whole concept of uh, prayer yes, it can be victorious and it often was or um, about faith, yes, it can be conquering faith and it sometimes is, but there are so many Aspects about faith. By the way, this coming Sunday, today, uh, today, uh, uh, so in a couple of days, at the time of recording, um, I I will have my next uh, preaching in my own um, Lutheran church, and because we go by the lectionary, like uh, Mm. we don't uh, find texts. (laughs) <laughs> Texts uh, find us, you. And, and I have an interesting. Uh, it's from Mark nine. This um, father uh, whose son uh, has some some problems um, comes to Jesus and um, asks, "Master or oh Lord, can you help me?" And Jesus says, "I'm paraphrasing. Uh, All things are possible, the one who believes." And the father says, "I believe. Help me in my unbelief." Mm-hmm. That's my sermon title, and my my main point. Um, it's uh, titled "Doubting Faith," mm, mm. and that is something um, we uh, which uh, in this case, it's example, in the Lutheran setting, uh, in my own church. But it'll be now that I ca- come to think about it, a good. Yeah. for my next uh, sermon in the Pentecostal church. That's exactly right. Yeah, Faith,
1: yeah, uh, yeah, part, part of what we're part of what we're up against, at least in many contexts, and I don't think only in the U.S. In part because of colonial exports. Yeah, but we we have a hard time thinking. You know, one of the ways I've put this in kind of casual conversations is we, we tend to be people of first thoughts. Like in English, <laughs> when you say someone's having second thoughts, you mean they're doubting. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Even really, they, are not, they are not doing the first thought. You're, you're right. <laughs> a, a second thought, which should just be, you know, thinking. Right? Like thinking is just yeah. like letting one thought lead to another thought lead to another. Like in, in everyday English, that means, oh, no, you didn't have yeah. the right first thought, you know. And <laughs> it's right. an astounding thing, right? that for a, so much of what gets called deconstruction, you know, popularly, it's not deconstruction. It's just people hungry to learn. Like they just right. are asking questions to which there are good answers, or at least there is, there are good practices for sitting with those questions, but, but, but there's a kind of impatience with the work of learning mm-hmm. and the yeah. work of discipleship and, and, but there's also i think a, a real a fear of grappling with what with mystery with what cannot be known and i i think this what you're calling us to dr k is is destabilizing and i also think it's part of the reason people fear contemplative prayer or meditation or yeah. silence right because it's then that 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 which we do not know that's which beyond our first thoughts encroaches on us, you know? So I I think all of that's related for sure.
0: Right, right. And it reminds me of uh, when I mentioned earlier that um, I was tutored by the Benedictines and their uh, spirituality. Father Killian, Killian McDonnell, um, he was once speaking, um, I don't remember what the occasion was, uh, at the Institute. And somebody asked him, Um, because he was at the time the Catholic co-chair of the International Catholic Pentecostal Dialogue. He's not himself a charismatic, but he's a good Catholic uh, Benedictine theologian who knows much about Pentecostalism. And somebody asked him, Father Killian, what's the difference between the charismatic movement or Pentecostalism and Catholic, like Benedictine spirituality? Right away, he said, he said, there are two words, power or presence. He said, Pentecostals and Charismatics, like, and I, now I'm uh, connecting it with what you, Chris, said, the first thing that comes to the mind for the Pentecostals and Charismatics when you hear the term Holy Spirit, power, mm-hmm. for Catholic, presence in the liturgy, in the sacraments, in mm-hmm. the prayer, in the meditation. Mm. And he said, uh, having himself cultivated uh, both aspects uh, for decades, uh, he's, a, he's a religious, like a monk. He said, We need both, but Pentecostals could do much more <laughs> with presence. And he said, mm-hmm. And we Benedictines might need some more talk about power. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. as simple as it is, it's a very profound, of course, oversimplification, but it works. And I have many times thought about the fact that uh, it's also part of this uh, my vision about the Babylonian captivity. What if we had a form of Pentecostalism hmm. which could hold together at the one and same time very strong fervor for the power of God? Because today Pentecostalism loses it. There's no Pentecostalism anymore. Mm. But at the same time, the presence of the Spirit of God, like uh, Luther's theology of the cross, that uh, God um, almost like masks himself um, under his opposites. Not power, but despair, weakness. Mm-hmm. Not glory, but darkness. Mm-hmm. And that is something that uh, we who uh, train, I don't have, it's, just, it's it's odd. I've not have one Pentecostal uh, PhD uh, primary mentee in my career. Isn't it odd mm. and fuller? Mm. I have been second mentor to some Melrose and others. Pentecostals, but but I and and in the generally speaking, we don't have a big uh, Pentecostal presence among students. Of course, there are a number of, um, but if I um, had an opportunity to spend more time with uh, Pentecostals in the classroom, that would be one of the lessons mm. that, both as a theologian and a minister of the church. I would emphasize. Mm-hmm. But I repeat, not, I, I'm not among those who, academy, academicians who believe that Pentecostals should become less Pentecostals to sober right. up. But be who they are and then add a surplus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you
2: think there's a uh, like as you as you're talking? And maybe I'm just being struck by wanting to hear your sermon that you've given us the kind of highlights <laughs> for. But <After> call. I, <laughs> it's, true, it's true, I'll be there. I'll be there. I, I am that Pentecostal. And um, but it, your comment about doubt and and you know and I've heard you say, uh, Chris, the, the thing you said about second thoughts as well. I it, it it did a kind of double thing in my head. It told me the story of Emmaus. Right. Um, one of the things that I'm always struck about in how Luke builds his argument around or his narrative around Emmaus is that these disciples leaving Jerusalem is an abandonment of faith. Right. Yeah. you know, the, yeah. the whole story has been going to Jerusalem and they're now not going to Jerusalem. And I'm always struck by how Jesus doesn't respond like a classic evangelical in Pentecostal in that <laughs> because he meets them. And yeah. and he walks with them away from Jerusalem <laughs> the whole time, right. knowing the whole time knowing we have to go back there eventually. Um, yeah. But then the frustration for the Pentecostal is, you know, we love the things that didn't our hearts burn within us as we walked yeah. down the road. But the bit that gets to us, I think, is that the end of the story isn't this great revelation of the Holy Spirit. It's the breaking of bread. Right? Yes, <laughs> that's yes. when we realized who this was. And exactly. I think we would like to import Acts two into the end of <laughs> the Emmaus story because that would fit our narrative a little bit better. Right. Yeah, <laughs> but of course it's it's a reading of Acts two that and and this is sort of some stuff that I've worked on in, in the past that I'm I, I I found more and more convinced of as I've gone along. It's a very and to use your term, it's it's a powerful reading of Acts two. And so what we do with Acts 2 is we do it to identify ourselves and almost use it as a shibboleth to keep others away from us. Right, right, yeah. Which it's our is, Pentecost. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And which is why I find myself drawn back to Emmaus, that Jesus doesn't offer them a sign of power at the end. He offers yeah. them a Eucharist and then is taken from them straight away. Mm, and they right. have to respond to this. I, I mean, I, I'm just trying to piece together sort of things as I'm listening to you. But, but as, a, as, as a Pentecostal, I think that's so much of what you're saying is at the root of my frustration with this tradition that I was born into, that we, we seem to do the wrong things with what God has given us, particularly when it comes to talking to others.
0: Right. Yeah, and I uh, thank you, David. Uh, very powerful. Um, that's why we need uh, biblical scholars also. <laughs> no, I, I was uh, just, uh, before we came back from... Um, from mm-hmm. Finland, as I said, we were recently. I was speaking uh, in an ecumenical um, church event. Ecumenical, in the sense that it was not uh, any ecumenical organization, but a number of local churches in, in a city in Finland. They were uh, Orthodox, Lutheran, Pentecostal, uh, Baptist, and others. They came together. Mm-hmm. They have an annual uh, kind of convocation, like uh, two or three days uh, of Bible Mm. studies and else. And they asked me to talk about, because they know that I wear these two hats, (laughs) like as a Pentecostal, talk to Lutherans and Orthodox what is missing and what is good in their spirituality Mm. and vice versa. And I really liked the exercise, not that it came for the first time in my life that I'm thinking of that, but I really noticed how much, now I'm speaking on the Pentecostal side, we Pentecostals can learn uh, from both of those spiritualities, in this mm-hmm. case also Eastern Orthodox uh, spirituality, who discern the presence of God, even mm-hmm. in, in cosmic um, uh, ramifications. Like the whole world is almost like a, a microcosm of um, God's presence. Mm. And, or if you come to the church, there's a palpable sense of the presence of God. Maybe mm. Pentecostals go to church, uh, we sell the latest gossips. And a couple of critical remarks about elders and the pastor, and then we start praying in a loud voice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you know I, I, have the, I have the right to criti- criticize my own folks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't talk about Baptists or, or, or say Metris in this way.
1: Mm-hmm. well I, I think and I think this might be a good place to to draw down this conversation i this This language of presence and power. It, it it seems to me, and you, you mentioned Luther in passing, that, of course, it wasn't uniform. But in early Pentecostalism, late 1800s, early 1900s, there was still a real sense of draw to Jesus, the Jesus of the cross. You know, as, as you yeah. know, Hollenweger can say, after his study of global Pentecostalism, mm. that global Pentecostal spirituality is a blood and wound mysticism. Yeah, yeah that i mean again there's obviously deep problems right from the very beginning of the movement i'm not i don't want it anyway cast some kind of golden age vision but it does seem to me that there was for the first few decades there was at least a a thread of commitment to the only power we want is the power of the cross it's the power specifically of the crucified one mm. That is the power of Pentecost, right? I mean, in, yeah. in in Luke's narrative, I mean, that David just drew our attention to, there is talk about power, but there are also, you know, Saul is growing in power. And in that power, he's persecuting the church. Mm-hmm. Satan's power is named multiple times in Acts. Simon, the sorcerer, wants to grab at power. And Peter yeah. says, you know, your heart is wicked because you're grasping for power, but not the power of Jesus, right? The power mm-hmm. of the crucified one. And so I, I wonder if if you could kind of send us off with some reflections there on what it might look like for Pentecostals not just to to be humble and be open as listeners to to voices outside their tradition, but to come back to that core truth of the only power the Spirit gives is the power of the crucified Jesus. And and maybe, yeah, preach that sermon to us.
0: (laughs) Uh, Thank you, Chris. Uh, First of all, I I want to acknowledge um, the very important work uh, that you, Chris, and um, other Pentecostal scholars in recent years have done uh, in uh, tracing this uh, mystical um, root and heritage, which Hollenweger suggested but didn't pursue. Yeah. Uh, he was an innovative thinker, and um I have uh, I have read um Chris your stuff um, and also Simon Chan and others, um, our mutual friend um, uh, who have gone into places which many Pentecostals at first might think are very strange wells. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. uh, the way you and others uh, have traced uh, our the, the early path um, through Christ and, and Jesus, and of course, you know everything about Pentecostalism is ultimately about Jesus, uh, whether you talk about full gospel mm-hmm. or not. Mm-hmm. And that is a good uh, piece of advice for us today, because for outsiders. If you ask, for example, the person on the street, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about Pentecostals? They say either shouting or dancing or Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. I don't think many. I don't think many would name Jesus mm-hmm. or the cross. Mm-hmm. But the, like all of us, we know Pentecostalism from inside out, not only uh, you know as an from the observer's perspective. When we go to, for example, to a Pentecostal prayer meeting, there's no invoking of Holy Spirit. Or very, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Or yeah. you listen to the prayers of your Pentecostal uh, grandparents or parents, uh, either literal or uh, spiritual. Um, Jesus is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm and uh when there's a celebration of the lord's uh, supper um there's a very deep it is mystical call yes. it however you want but it's kind of uh, and, and there's a the, sen- the sensing of the presence of the crucified mm. and it is not opposite to the idea of also bringing your sicknesses uh, the problems of your family or financial needs at the altar, and praying uh, for the um, you know fire of God, as they That's call right. it, to to fall on the altar, or very powerful uh, praising and dancing after mm-hmm. this uh, mm-hmm. solemn moment. That's right. And and I fear, or let's put it more positively, that is something. Pentecostalism needs and needs badly, or else we become thin. Yes, yes.
1: I mean, my own experience, I mean, I'm still a young man. I'm only 46. But in my lifetime, I think the Pentecostal movement that I serve, both as a professor and a pastor, has changed. And I, I think it changed in the late 80s, early 90s. And I think it had a lot to do with socioeconomic and political realities mm-hmm. shifting in the U.S. Yeah, yeah.
0: And, and also uh, in some other parts of the world, oh absolutely
1: yeah I mean it, it's a global shift, I yeah. completely agree I think the the people of course that I'm living closest to because this is where I've lived, it started you know my awareness of it started there, but it isn't limited to us, but I think you know i I grew up i mean as a young kid, we were in church all the time, and there was lots of shouting and dancing. Mm. But there was even more groaning before the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. Groaning is a good word. Yeah. And this sense of tarrying in God's presence. Yeah. And so much preaching about the blood and about, you know, it's funny. We didn't invoke the spirit. We did invoke the blood. Like essentially the blood of Jesus became a kind of epiclesis for us. Like we would would plead the blood over Mm. people who were ill or people who were in danger over spaces, you know, Mm. there, it's striking to me and, and a little frightening, honestly, that mm-hmm. a movement with that kind of mystical depth could just suddenly get swept away from its own sources and away from its own integrity into something else. And I, th- I think some of that has to do with our churches, were so, we were growing and then we suddenly mm-hmm. took pride in the fact yes. that we were growing and mm-hmm. we rode the wave of that growth. Yeah, we had more money. We had more money. Yeah, it's a, a, you know, Donald Dayton would say, you know, it's about becoming middle class and upper middle class. You know, and I'm sure that's not the only thing, but that's a factor. But I I do, for me, at least, it is, it isn't simply listening to the voice of the spirit outside of our tradition and even outside of our religious tradition. I think we should do that. Absolutely. But I think in some ways it's listening to the voices of our own mothers and fathers who knew, who knew how to groan before before the lord and 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 as you said they they turned their attention to the crucified and i think your your work and what's coming up out of your heart right now is a reminder of that david i'm going to give you the last the last question here and then and we'll end thank you so much for
0: this dr k it really is a gift of course Uh, thank you my privilege i
2: i i think that you know you you made a reference a little bit earlier and and it follows on i think to what Chris was saying just there, uh, one of the things that a global perspective does is, you you know, and I'm not the expert in this very evidently in this conversation, but I think about the issue of the poor and I'm struck whenever I read acts, you know, and try to read it as a Pentecostal. um, The spirit is constantly working amongst the ignored and and amongst Mm -hmm. those who are easy to dismiss. It fascinates me the intentionality of the Spirit throughout Acts to not become a, a mechanism for the powerful, but to keep breaking into spaces where people could be easily ignored, be they poor and in need of us to sell our houses to help them, or be they the kind of Greek-speaking faction of the of the Jewish community that are now not getting their widows looked after. and And I wonder, I, I don't, I'd love to hear your response, even to to, to Chrissy's comments just there. That you know, is there a connection in the in this where we actually see as we try and gentrify ourselves as Pentecostals, as we try and mm. maybe give up some of our distinctives so that we can sit at the evangelical table? You know, is it is it intrinsically in that that we start to lose sight of the Spirit because because we're closing down to being the sort of you know sweaty upstairs rooms where just anybody that wanted sort of. You know, I, I have in mind the early Pentecostal meetings that crossed cultural and, you know, racial boundaries. Uh, so I don't know if that follows on from your question, Chris, at some yeah, level, but it does. It does. I'd love to hear y- your final thoughts on
0: that. Yes. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, uh, now I can't resist, but uh, I-, I took my um, iPhone uh, where I have my Bible um the way I am currently doing my own Bible study, not for the sake of my academic work, not even my sermon preparation, but just the, the daily, I'm going um, through minor prophets. Mm. And um, at the moment, uh, I'm, of all the prophets, I'm Joel. Mm-hmm. And let me finish my own, um, portion of this by reading these two verses about where the spirit will be and has already descended, because these were the, the verses that I read. I also have a commentary uh, on my right side, which I check uh, for some things but this is these are the the most Pentecostal old Testament verses as it happened. Mm. Uh, Joel 2.28, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even upon the men men's servants and maid servants in those days. I will pour out my spirit. Thanks to the living God. Amen. 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 Amen.